Thanks for joining us for a discussion of The Seventh Sense, the book that decodes how to make sense of the network gauge. A few years ago, as I was puzzling through the problems around us, thinking about the way in which our politics were becoming more unstable, the most aggressive war on terror in human history was producing more terrorists, the smartest economic policy was creating more economic instability, I realized that all around me were a group of people who had a sense for the way that this world was operating now, and there was a sense that could be learned and understood by all of us. The tale of the book, The Tale of the Seventh Sense, really is that story. It begins uh, with my own insights uh, dating back uh, from places hanging out with people like Hezbollah in Lebanon or Chinese Zen masters and getting a sense that there were forces in the world that weren't quite visible, that could be understood, and that would change forever the way the world was moving. I also noticed that among my friends, there were some people who had an unusual grip on this and frankly had it a lot earlier than the rest of us. One of those was Reid Hoffman, who founded LinkedIn and who was nice enough to sit down with me at LinkedIn headquarters for a long conversation about how he sees the world, what LinkedIn means, and how to cultivate that network instinct so all of us can understand it. Reid's perspective is very much from a technology point of view, if you're thinking about starting a new company or what technology is doing to your job, but we move pretty quickly to deeper philosophical issues. Here's the Reid Hoffman conversation about the seventh sense. So I, I thought maybe a good place to start is of all the people I know who have anything resembling the seventh sense, you're the probably the emblematic person who in every way, I think both from a commercial way you look at the world and I would say sort of philosophical disposition, think that way. A lot of the ideas you have about life as kind of an alliance, which I'm part of and other friends are part of is I think a, an embodiment of kind of that. I remember seeing the Netscape browser in 95 and just kind of thinking, holy cow, this is mind-blowing. I got a piece of it, but I, I think you kind of got all of it because a couple of years later you were thinking about social, you were buying up uh, the Friendster patents or uh, Six Degrees six patents, degrees, right, yes. and moving in that direction. So maybe just we can go to the past first and then we'll yeah. do the present and the future. What, what was that instinct you had? And I'm also curious, some degree, I mean, how did your training kind of in philosophy and logic prepare you to, because one of the great things about you is you intellectualize everything, which probably us and many of our friends are accused of doing all the time. So I know that you then, yes. it was an instinct. You were actually yes. thinking about it. So yep. maybe take me back to that period. So I think what it came down to is when I was in college, I decided that the thing that I most wanted to do was influence the evolution of humanity by being a public intellectual, which was essentially generating ideas and memes that could spread around, people would find compelling, yeah. and they would change the way they conceived of themselves and their relationship to other people. Okay. And I was like, all right, well, actually, in fact, what I want to do is help shape the medium by which we identify ourselves and by which we identify other people and by which we communicate and transact with them. I said, I'll do that. What's the right way of doing that? That's software. Okay. Right. And even though I'd been exposed to the internet and I'd been exposed to online services, that was actually, in fact, primarily, like I was thinking I was going to create a personal information manager. Right. I was still somewhat desktop system oriented. What was interesting is the insight was on the platform. Before yes. we knew what platforms were. Yes. Okay. Yes. And it wasn't really off the McLuhan, the medium is the message. Right. But it was the, the medium shapes both the reflection by which our identity and the way that we identify and connect with other people. Because part of, like, for example, what you were saying in the seven senses what it is is realizing that the fundamental nature of the character of the object or the node or the entity is in its network connection. That's right. Right? It's right. transformed by its network connection. Right. It's given by its network connection. Its power, its, its ability to manipulate and be manipulated all comes from its totally. network connection. Exactly, yeah. Right? And so it was saying, okay, that medium, that, that connectivity, and it very quickly went to online because I started working on it. And then I went, well, wait a minute. 
this is online services. Yeah. Right. This is the internet. And we should do that. And so I first was like, okay, well, what was being commercialized was online services. So I went and joined uh, Apple Computers eWorld. And then I, I remember vividly. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what a great service. Yeah. <laughs> Cute little graphics. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and then I went, well, wait a minute. This is all wrong because the nature of the platform, and this gets to, like, for example, in your uh, penultimate chapter, the you know, hard question where you go on Gatelands, this is where you get to, well, actually, in fact, how networks are shaped. Are they open or closed? How is admittance? Who controls the nodes? Who controls the admittance? What is the platform structure? All these things. All the internet's far better designed yeah. than essentially e-world. the yes, yes than eWorld or any of the online platforms. Right. Better than America Online, which is right. much more dominant. Better than CompuServe, which is right. yeah, Prodigy. Must right. be right. <laughs> yes. Living in New York, you remember yes, Prodigy. Exactly. And so it was like, okay, I have to do that. And then very quickly, what it it moved to was the way that most people had been talking about it was it was cyberspace. It was the network was this place you went to. It was yeah. like this kind of strange, lawless, right. you know, vaguely game-like. You know, there were books, there were great books written like Snow Crash and yes. so forth. And it was actually, in fact, no, no, this is actually just going to be part of our lives. Yeah. It's actually just going to be an extension. It's going to be a space we move in. It is completely one with actually our real lives. Right. Now, obviously, there's still electronic communication, still electronic space, still electronic identity. But that's going to be the future. Yes. And then what are the platforms there? What are the applications there? And how is it they're really important to us and what shapes them? And that's what got me into the era. And that was really the huge insight, I think, from the, even as we look at it today from a commercial standpoint, if we think about the discussion of virtual reality versus augmented reality, mm-hmm. it is that intersection of the technology and the human of our day-to-day lives that's mm-hmm. making the great commercial platforms. The, and it's very true. I mean, in the beginning, that was conceived of as this completely separate architecture. But what you see every day now is it's this intersection of the real and the and the virtual or whatever we want to call it, where the not only where the economics are, but really where the information, the power. And that's where that lands, whether you're manipulating the outcome of presidential elections or changing what's going on in financial markets. Uh, it's the collision of the things in a way that's the most interesting. Well, that's fascinating. So, I mean, you, you began really from this philosophical perspective of it's almost as if like, you know, Plato and Socrates have been sitting around and saying, you know, we've got these great ideas about justice, but our distribution system is the spoken word. How do I own the spoken word? <laughs> yes. It turned out to be a very good thing to invest in. How did you think about the, the kind of structural process about going to, to do that? I mean, when you saw Friendster come along and you mm-hmm. watched that, how did you think intellectually this is right, this is wrong? Well, let's. so first I started with, I said, all right, what's going to happen is People's real lives matter. They're going to have an online identity. And the real thing about the sh- configuration of the online space network yeah. is to put you in juxtaposition with the people that you want to have real relationships with. And so I founded this company called SocialNet. Right. And there were all kinds of misconceptions to it. So, for example, I didn't have you port your real relationships into it. It was building new relationships. Yeah as opposed to your actual current relationships as the platform Huge for these applications, yes. right? Yeah. And that's very interesting. That's even relevant today, I think, if yes. you look at services, right? That it's that, that bringing of the, the offline into the online. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it then becomes a loop. Yeah. It's offline, online, online, offline, totally. offline. Yeah. But so many people begin, begin with this conception of, I'm going to do the online community for X, yes. and then it dies. Exactly. Right. And so, and so I had done that. And then I saw this service called Six Degrees, which is the patent that we later purchased. And like there were a lot of things that were genius about it, and a lot of things that were not so genius about it. But I looked at it and went, oh my gosh, this is exactly right because this is beginning from the place of the people that I already know. Right. And actually, in fact, what this should be is a platform layer for how you build applications 
that navigate whether it's your work life, your social life, your friend's life, et cetera, and that that network is actually now conceived of as a platform. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, that's uh, really amazing. And I actually would have gone and started the company right then, except that what happened was when I was leaving SocialNet to start gearing up to start the company that now has ultimately become LinkedIn, I was on the board of PayPal, and right. uh, my friend and CEO, Peter, basically said, no, 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 before you do that, come join us, yes, right? Yes. And the whole pitch was actually, was only gonna be like six to 12 months, and it was all gonna resolve, and of course, three years later, but with amazing results, I looked around, and I had the fortune to still be able to go do the idea, and that's how I got to starting LinkedIn. And what did you, in that process, there's one of the things I talk about in the book is there was a sort of discovery on the road of, mm-hmm. of building Facebook where they found essentially that if you got, if you found 10 friends in seven days on the service, mm-hmm. you were likely to stay. Yep. And there were these kind of crucial insights of what makes networks grow. What yep. were some of the sort of things you learned about that on the way? Well, so one of the things that we invented that later was copied by the industry, and there's different things that different parties invented. So Six Degrees invented the, you put in email addresses and you send out invitations and then that and then that essentially gets you a connected graph. Yeah. What we did is we said, well, what's the first question that most people encounter when they get to a network? And the first question they encounter is who else is here? Right. Right. Like, like, is this a place for me? It's like, who else is here? It's like walking to a party. Yes. Right. And so what we did is we said, well, upload your address book and we'll tell you who else, you know, who's here. That was us. Right. And then you go, okay, you do that and say, oh, Joshua's here. Right. Right. Oh, hey, Joshua. Great. Because people like to express connection. They like to express connectivity. They like to express regard. Right. And so it's like, hey, we're yes. friends. Yes. <laughs> right? No, it really is like walking to a party and looking yeah. around and being like, oh, there's somebody I know. <laughs> yes. And you walk over and you talk to them. Yeah. And by the way, the dynamic of this is you had signed up already, but you might have signed up and kind of like, I didn't really find anyone I knew or I didn't upload my address book. Right. But then you get a ping for me. You're like, oh, Reed's here. Right. Oh, Reed's at this party too. I'm going to come back and check this out again. And then, of course, you might say, oh, now I'm going to upload my address book and I find out that Joey is here. Right. And so then now I'm going to actually go connect with Joey as well. So it's basically, one of the clever things about it is it's sort of an arbitrage on the incredible amount of time we've all built making real-world human relationships, yes. as opposed to being, let's just build these purely virtual ones. Yes, and, and actually, the, there are there's utility to purely virtual ones, but actually, in aggregate, much less to your real ones. Yeah. Because the question is, actually, in fact, I'm leading this life. Yeah. Right? I'm leading this work life, this personal life, this social life, this friendship life. Right. right. And amplifying that is what I really want. Yeah, I think that's just such a huge basic insight because it does express, and it's natural to people who are kind of native to this medium, but the realness of what you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. It is, again, this intersection of the real and the virtual that's so interesting and compelling. And I think even as we watch the networks at work today in various places, uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is just like the incredible resilience of ISIS, for instance, Mm -hmm. and that ability they have, in fact, by understanding that something that is using a virtual medium to spread these you know, horrible videos, they find a way to connect with people in bedrooms in London and pull them out of there and get them engaged. It's that strength of somehow using the virtual to touch the real that turns out where the power is. It's not yes. just the purely virtual yeah. world. The, the network is not virtual. The network is actually yeah. in the world. Yeah. Right. And so you essentially have to, you know, as you know, I refer to this as network age. Right. <laughs> right. Essentially, to accomplish anything serious, what's your network strategy? And this is why the seven senses is so key. Because the question is, unless you're thinking in networks, seeing networks, acting on them, thinking that that's the fundamental thing that actually makes changes happen at, you know, kind of waves or tectonic levels, you're going to fail. Right. And understanding the underlying dynamics of the networks themselves. 
So one of the issues there as you start to construct these networks is, uh, you know, it's one of the things I talk about in the book is that the networks crave certain things. There are certain things that they want almost, and not to, you know, make them into human-like anthropomorphic kind of subjects, but the laws of network power suggest certain things. So one of them is this network effects principle in which the rich get richer in the sense of, right, the reason that LinkedIn works so well is there ain't no second place. That if you want to go somewhere else, it's you're going to be pretty lonely there. And there's this wonderful thing about the network effects, which is, as we know, it's not only that the network, this is Metcalf's law, grows exponentially by the power of every additional person. Also turns out the cost of being cut out of that network grows exponentially because that thing just grows faster and faster. Yes. So as you think about the architecture of the business today, what's the aim? Because you've won that, you won the network effect battle, basically. So once you have the platform, what do you then do with it? Well, you're actually never in a strategist around building a network, you're never finished with it. Even okay. though you actually generate a network, it has network effects, it has a value to it, you're building in other loops in the networks, right? So, you know, like for example, That's historically, if you look at it, like Microsoft, the document format in Office right. was a version of network effect. Right. There was a different one versus developers and the platform. Like there's right. sets of different loops. Got so you're it. always looking at multiple networks interweaving. And so you begin to think, okay, what are the other kinds of network loops that we can that's add in. That's super interesting. Yes. And so that's partly so you get the feedback. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things about the network thing is that you, I was talking to somebody who does a lot of online advertising and, and content who was saying to me, I basically never want to do something again that I can't get feedback on. Yes. Because I can't, and so the old world of media where, you know, Tom Brokaw sits there and gives you his view of the world for 30 minutes is useless because there's no feedback. They can't yes. tell if you're watching, if you're turning it off. And so therefore, you should only invest in activities that produce yes. new feedback loops. Yes, because that feedback loop means that you're the first to learn you're first to adapt, yeah. and you're the first to respond to it. And so it's essentially the way that you win the race. Yes, that's super interesting. So I think one of the things that we're talking about is one of the great debates or maybe philosophical exercises has been trying to understand what it is that causes preferential attachment or, or this kind of winner-take-all theory. So we know why the end result is what it is, which is that, to use your Microsoft example, the reason everybody was using Microsoft Word is if I sent you a document, you had to use it that way. Yep. We know that the economics of that were great for Microsoft because it cost them $100 million to make Word and then five cents to ship every additional copy. But there's a lot of discussion about what caused that to happen. And so we used to have this theory, which was kind of was this idea of preferential attachment, that somehow I heard you were using it, and therefore mm -hmm. I decided it turned out that is actually not an adequate uh, explanation for it. But one of the ideas which comes out of the design of the networks themselves comes from this idea of queuing theory, essentially, that it is so much more efficient to have everybody at these things that the mm -hmm. networks ultimately crave speed in a way. They just yeah. want to be faster and faster. When you map that now onto the labor market, you know, that suggests, at least from my perspective, just a total transformation of kind of the way in which people will connect, find, and work over the, mm -hmm. over the course of their lives. How do you accelerate? That's a, the classic feed, feedback loop, which is the yeah. speed. So how do you accelerate that sort of feedback loop on a product like LinkedIn? Well, I'll give you uh, kind of one example, which is part of what underlies a uh, purchase we did last year of a company called Linda, which is, say, how do we help every individual be much more on target for changing their economic career? How do we take the network signals in a way that helps every oh, individual navigate. Right. And so by changing their economic career, basically, how do you improve their economic outcome? Yes. So just like you might use something to improve your health or whatever, this thing actually looks at, here what your behavior patterns are, here's what we know yes. about you. Oh, super interesting. Yes. Okay. So what you do is you say, okay, well, here is how we see, we, we pull together several different kind of network signals. So here's how we see job listings changing and which kinds of skills. Here's how we see changing within your company. Here's what we see changing within your industry and region. Great. And here, in addition to the skills that you already have, here are the skills that look like they are the trending projection for the kind of thing that, that would be the natural progression steps from where you are. Yeah. 
and here's how you can get them. Yep. And that's essentially the all this network signal going to the individual going, here's how I navigate right. my career. So you're basically providing a feedback loop for the human yes. labor market participation. Yes. And, 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 and at LinkedIn, our top thing is how do we enable each individual? But then, of course, it's how do we enable organizations, things right. like companies, universities, to interface with the network and the individuals as well. What do you see most as you look at kind of changing organizational structures? Who do you admire most in terms of like, okay, this is an organizational structure that's really built to respond to network forces? Oh, that's interesting. I think most organizations are um, substantially behind. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, <laughs> yeah. one of the core arguments that I have in the book is that you know, when we think about the scale of what the network revolution represents, mm. first of all, in terms of shifting power, it is as large a shift as the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution mm. were. And the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution wiped out every institution in Europe over a 300-year mm. period. It caused the biggest wars in human history because mm. all these institutions were architected for like uh, like the Pope or like, mm. you know, an alchemist. Mm. Those guys didn't survive the scientific revolution, so yes. there had to be some sort of upheaval there. I think the same thing is going to happen now because so many of our institutions are just not architected for this new world. And so if you look mm. around, there's not a single institution that's more respected than it was very few mm. 10 years ago of mm. the existing ones. And so I agree with you. It's just extremely difficult to look mm. at an organization other than something like ISIS, frankly, which is yeah. horrible, and yeah. say, okay, this is optimized for the network age. There's some small kind of working companies, uh, things like WordPress actually is a distributed yeah. set of offices and kind of ways of checking in. There's a few things like that, but most of it is most people do not yet actually have a network strategy. Yeah. Right. And actually, in fact, part of the reason why, you know, I thought The Seven Senses is a great book for this time. And you know, wrote a blurb saying everyone should read this. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> right? Is because actually, in fact, it's another of the central corollaries. You say, look, if you're an organization, a hundred people or more, you should have a technology strategy. You should have a network strategy. Right. Like, what is the way that you're playing? Right. You know, kind of your network strategy in order to accomplish your objectives, and that goes in the case of network goes all the way down to the individual. Right. Does that person? Does every individual have a network strategy? Yes. Which I think I articulate some of that in the startup of me, but I think we're now yeah. at a point where well, it's the startup of you. Startup yeah. of you. Sorry, <laughs> it, it, we're so, it's, it's good to personalize it. it. Well, I, I took real ownership over. <laughs> yes. So it, it's so clear that we have to find a way to develop yeah. this, and it is uh, it's the single hardest skill. Do you find when you're hiring, are you noticing demographic changes? Meaning when you're talking to people who kind of are of the network age that they think in these terms, or do they map their careers more onto the existing industrial structure still? Well, I think it's a blur between. I don't think they've fully gotten to how to think about networks. So, like, yeah. for example, here is here's a kind of a LinkedIn parallel to when people really start thinking about the network. Like, if they have the seven cents yeah. and they see LinkedIn, how do they think? One thing they'll think is, I have a strategy for being found. There are thousands of people who yeah. have interesting business transactions, not just hiring me, but like could be advice, advising, yes. a, a deal for my company who are all out there executing search and learn, and, and so I should be findable. Yes. So what's my strategy for being, being found, right. right? That would be one place where you essentially have the seven cents and you're looking at LinkedIn. The key thing in a network is essentially alliances, right. so that if there are ways that I can build very strong alliances with people so that we're helping each other, we will both be much better off. One yes. plus one is three, four, five, something. Yes. Right? By the way, that is a super counterintuitive. I mean, you know, I approached the, the book really from the question yeah. of for sort of foreign policy, which yeah. where that idea is like, you know, thousands of years, people have said, no, 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 no. Yeah. That's like red lights, red lights, red yes. lights. But, but that is actually networks, the way. that's yeah. right. It's a win-win. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so uh, I have this kind of awkwardly named theory called the theory of small gifts, which is what's a little thing I can do for you that's a really big value for you. Yeah. Because if we're, we're all doing that within our network, we all generate a massive amount of value. Right. 
And so, for example, another one when it comes to LinkedIn is I connect to you because I'm actually looking to help you. It's like, here's a whole bunch of people I know. One of them may be really useful to you. Right. Right. And actually, that's why I'm connecting to yes. you. Because I might be able to help you in this little small way that's massive for but you. But what's super interesting about that is basically what you're talking is every one of those things is like feeding the ecosystem, yeah. right? It's like feeding yeast. And so it is, in fact, a situation where suppressing your competitive instincts actually is better for everybody. It's the yes. triumph of the commons as opposed to the tragedy of the commons. But it is so hard to get people thinking that yes. way. Yes. Uh, I mean, do you have a strategy sort of like, how do you, how do you make that message clear to people when they're, when they're so, showing up on LinkedIn? So my uh, strategy with LinkedIn, relatively persistent, although we add a lot of detail to it, is get them exposed to the benefits of the network. Get them into yeah. it. Get them learning its value. So, yeah. for example, a lot of times people come to LinkedIn and say, ah, I think it's useful for finding a job. And then something drops in their lap. And they're like, yeah. oh, this is life transforming. It could be anything from like a friend that you lost touch with 20 years ago finding you to uh, like an interesting business deal right. for you actually company that you're working There's sort at. There's an aha moment yeah. that shows you this is the positive return yes. nature of this network. Yes. And so what I see is the, the new generation is much more technically savvy at the fact that I have a electronic identity. Yeah. That, that there is a profile, that there's communications. But they're still Not working into that what it's a is positive sum game. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and seeing it as a network, yeah. like the IC networks. Yes. That's still TBD. Yeah, and it's still emerging. And it's very interesting. You know, I, I got a lot of the network stuff coming at it from from chaos theory and complexity mm -hmm. theory, and so much of the literature in that space around biological evolution, all this other mm -hmm. stuff. If if you only had evolution as a result of competition, mm -hmm. we'd all be dead. Yes. And in fact, it's this incredible interspecies cooperation that yes. produces progress. But I think that an industrial economy, and you know, for better or worse, to some degree, certain forms of capitalism were so zero sum in their calculus that yep. we're sort of at a tipping point in that regard. Uh, and I think so, some people are so pessimistic about the economic future, but actually this suggests that if you can kind of resolve it in the right way, yeah. there may be something great out there. I think the key thing comes down to, and this is one of the things that, you know, maybe your next book after The Seventh Sense, although you, having just written one, that's usually when you're shuddering and thinking not for yes, a long time. Yes is how is it that we're, and this is, by the way, part of the work for LinkedIn and, and Facebook and other companies, is how is it that we define these networks such that they are much better for the individuals and also better for society right. and better for the group? Right. And what is the evolution of them? And then how do you begin to apply that concept to, for example, citizenry, yes. nation states, That's right. foreign relations? That's going to be the nature of the age. Totally. And that is, these are the big questions. I mean, this is why, and you know, when I was doing the book, I took two years and subjected many of my friends, including you, I went back and did nothing but read all the Enlightenment thinkers yeah. and Locke and Burke and Kant and then bored people with discussions about how brilliant Locke was if they'd like <laughs> anybody needed to hear that again. But that's right. That's what lies ahead of us now. Uh, the only area I know much about is foreign policy, and so I tried to apply it there. Mm -hmm. But all these questions, I mean, really at the heart of like, what does a democratic system look like and how can it be made better? And I think there's such a strong reaction now against all of this because people are like, well, it's just different than what came before, so I'm scared of it. Yep. And I, there's a lot to be worried about philosophically. There's no question about that. But at at the same time, it's very clear that there's the possibility to make something magnificent. So I think that's the that's the task that lies ahead. One of the things that you cover uh, well, as many points in the Seven Sense, is how most people don't realize that currency is actually, in fact, a network, and as part of the yeah. Seven Sense, and it's kind of how the dollar system works, and why isn't the reserve currency? You address Bitcoin, and you're right. like, okay, look, here's a new technological innovation. That's that's a network age right. uh, innovation. One of the things that I think is, again, part of the kind of elaboration is Bitcoin is interesting 
as not just as an asset, as a currency, or even as a platform for being like the HTTP of money, right. right, or value in terms of smart contracts and other kinds of things. It's also interesting as network definition, because part of what happens when we say, well, what kinds of future world order do we want? What, what do we want to influence? What do we want to create? Right. Well, Bitcoin is one of those things that, look, it's a totally open system. Everyone can participate or not. It's a trust-based system because, like, for example, many of the Bitcoin people refer to it as trustless trust. Yeah. Because you don't actually have to trust any specific thing in order right. to actually participate That's in right. a system that embodies trust right. as a way of doing it. And that allows all kinds of new patterns. Like, for example, you can imagine uh, creating, using a Bitcoin-like system, a system that said, look, what we're going to want to do is we're going to create a whistleblower mechanism that you can report things into, and it will automatically unlock three years from now. Yeah. Right? Or it will automatically unlock three years from now unless I push the button saying, yes, it's okay, it's, it's been, it's been right. fixed. Right. right? So you can imagine changing a world's work, because by the way, WikiLeaks, Snowden, those are right. also network age things. Absolutely. You can imagine a world where you say, well, now actually we have a means of doing WikiLeaks-like accountability without all the damage. Right. And that's a network architecture question. So what becomes much more central, the reason why the seventh sense is so important for leaders, you know, politicians, business leaders, academics is to say, well, how should we design these kinds of systems? I I think every network is, I think this is the great question. And it's also, by the way, such a privilege of our age that we actually get to grapple with this. I mean, because these are path dependent decisions. It's moving so quickly that, frankly, decisions we're going to make in our lifetimes or lifetimes of people who read the book are, are in fact, going to be dispositive for hundreds of years. Yes. And particularly when we get to AI and these kinds of issues, it's very important. But th- this issue you're talking about in particular, I, I find, is very important because the current network designs, among the things that we have a lot of debate about, like, where does power sit in a network? Mm-hmm. And the sort of easy first interpretation people have is, oh, it just distributes it to everywhere. Power is hugely <laughs> redistributed. There is no power anymore. Everybody has it. But that's as, never true. Right, exactly. It, it's, <laughs> it, and as, that's certainly never true. And, and what we know, in fact, is yes, it does distribute power yes. tremendously, but it also creates these historic concentrations of power. In the five square miles around here where you are and Google is and other people are working out, there are algorithms, Facebook, that are more powerful and controlled by a, a small group of people that are maybe yeah. more powerful than any group in human history to some yeah. degree. So you create incredibly concentrated power in the hands of very few people who at the moment are trying to figure out what they're accountable to while you create incredible distribution. Those are all questions of network design. Yes. And so this issue of who you trust and how you trust ultimately, yes. I think, is going to lead us to, a, to an answer to that. Yes. It's just very hard to say today what that is exactly. Yeah. And part of the thing that is a classic Silicon Valley perspective is they say, because you know, sometimes they're asked, look, okay, Facebook creates this network, can actually do experiments and run experiments where they can increase or decrease people's moods right. based on changes in the algorithm, which is right. shocking right. Right, in terms of an aggregate number. And, and people say, well, who are they to do that? And you say, well... We built a product that is voluntary, that yeah. people opt in because they like it and the things that are happen. And we have an, actually a natural incentive to try to make them happy. Right. We have a natural incentive to try to have make them engage. Some right. of that may, some of that engagement may be, okay, you're playing more to their appetites than their higher selves, and you know, okay, how do we navigate through that? Right. But right. you know, again, with good leadership, you try to do that. But the interesting question not only comes of, which is super interesting and very few people have any grasp on, is how do you design the network? But then it's kind of like, well, okay. Who in which ways has the right to design the network? Yes. What is the thing that gives you the right? right. Now, on a commercial answer, we say, we build a product people love. And right. people, right. It's important it for their lives. in the market, you're Yes, good. yes. Yeah. And that, that's, by the way, not a bad answer. Right. It's it, like when you begin to say, okay, what are the other answers and how should they be? That's at least an answer. 
The interesting question is what are the additional answers right. and which ones of those have both efficacy, moral authority. Right, right. And particularly, I think, as we move into the future, we'll talk about it in a second. But I mean, one of the points I make, I argue in the book, is there's sort of this theory of the, the history of Europe, essentially, mm -hmm. until today, that basically you could tell the story of Europe in the story of three castes or three groups of people, the merchants, the soldiers, and the sages. And that all of European history essentially can be understood as like an alliance between various groups at various times. So the rise of France was because of the alliance of the sages and the soldiers to some yep. degree. Of Great Britain was the merchants and the soldiers. I think what we're seeing emerging now that I talk about in the book is what I call a new caste, mm -hmm. which is this information technology network mastering mm -hmm. caste. And it's not just people out in the valley. It's the yep. guys running hyperspeed hedge funds. It's mm -hmm. people doing uh, DNA research. But it is the people who sit at the core and decide these algorithms that then have tremendous yep. impact. And I think we, we are still trying to figure out on what basis is that made. Because commercial viability is a piece of it, but there's a whole other set of values yeah. that have to go along with that. Just like any ecosystem, there's actually multiple roles which have dynamic reactions, sometimes symbiotic. So network design really matters. Yeah. Network architecture algorithm really matters. But then certain nodes also learn how to play it and how to exploit it. Yes. Right? I mean, we're seeing that in the current U.S. presidential election. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right? And the funny thing is I've gotten questions from journalists, you know, your long ago background. Yes. Who are like, you know, what is this? And does this mean that, like, you know, journalism got away? And it's like, well, actually, in fact, the way this, is, this particular election is being played is by using social media to do something particularly outrageous, it's controlling the news totally. cycle. That's right. All the journalists are responding to that and writing about that, which is then a feedback loop. Exactly right. You have the same loops happening within it. Sure, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn are designing their algorithm in certain ways. Right. But there are some people who are also they much better at playing it. Right. And actually, and by the way, sometimes that's symbiotic. Right. Right. They go, okay, I'm doing these things, which is actually good for what the platform's doing. So then it's naturally promoted. Right. They they fill each other. No, one yes. of my friends who's a, still a journalist said to me, I don't understand what's going on because the model used to be we built these guys up and then we tore them down. Yes. And it's like we built this guy up. We can't tear him down. And it's like, yeah, that's because it's just a different, the dynamics are different. Yes. You built him on a basis of thousands, millions of interacting pieces. Yes. And that then changes, love him or hate him, it changes the dynamic of the way in which somebody like that can function in the yes. world. So that raises another interesting thing. One of the things on the networks that is interesting as they get faster, there's sort of more and more contagion risk, uh, which is something happens one place and it spreads very quickly almost mm -hmm. anywhere in the system. How do you think about managing that speed? I mean, what we what we crave from the networks is more and more speed, less and less latency. And uh, both of us in various ways are involved in things that are designed to kind of, how do we drive this latency down to zero? But the risk of that instantness, there's a great line I have in the book, which is uh, during World War One, one of the uh, German generals said, you know, if the negotiations for this war in advance had been conducted by horseback instead of this damn telegraph, we would have avoided the war. But the speed of this telegraph was just so fast, we couldn't possibly be making rational decisions. Well, today, the speed at which yes. things happen is just absolutely blistering. How do you balance that, that incredible market drive for just more and more and more speed with the fact that we're, very few of us are prepared to actually handle that? Well, uh, one is, I think it's, you know, Part of the network age, it's a real defined as what are some of the risks as well as the opportunities, and this is one of the real risks. Yeah. Because the natural uh, competitive advantage for an individual, for an organization, for a nation, is to respond faster, is to actually have, right. it's, it's just like, for example, now you have journalists who before we do fact checking are going to tweet or post totally. something right away because they're trying to win the, the speed game. Right. And Speed's more important than truth. Yes. And so then yeah. that propagates through the whole system. What you have to do is you have to figure out, okay, what are the ways that we figure out how to build 
network designs that essentially say, okay, right. it's actually, in fact, what people will hone to is, well, actually, I want speed to the right conclusion. Yeah. I want speed to the right conclusion, right. but to the right conclusion. Right. And how do you build the design and in I the right way? I think this is exactly the right point, which is, I, that's sort of where we are today. Like, yeah. the great question are these network architecture questions. Um, and that's maybe a good segue into maybe talking about the future for a second. So, you know, you and I, about a week and a half ago, we're, I guess what we're supposed to say is an undisclosed location for a private <laughs> discussion about uh, artificial intelligence. Um, MIT Media Lab. Yeah, exactly. That's fine. Is that allowed to be said? <laughs> yeah, that's allowed to be said. <laughs> it's such a big deal about it being <laughs> well, off the record. I, I think they wanted the content off the record. I think the fact the that we're the MIT Media is probably Lab. probably safe. Yeah, and then that makes it, us sound less nefarious than everybody yeah, else. that's probably true. Good point. Yes. So as you think about the emergence of AI onto this system, <laughs> how does that begin to change the calculations about the way in which it sits on the network? Mm. Because one of the things, part of the speed, I mean, I think the network age that we have now is a relatively trivial implementation of what we'll have in the future. And in the, the yes. first thing is the networks will be instant. They will be, you know, today we at least have some latency built in the mm. system. That's all going to go away. It's going to go away for technological reasons. It's going to go away for architecture reasons. One of the results of instantness is going to be the demand for AI. Yes. Because there's things that the network itself will not be able to process without the use of AI, which is then going to filter out to the entire system. So as you, as you start to think about that future evolution, how, where does that sit? Well, one of the things that's interesting is, is we've obviously seen this recent massive amount of progress in artificial intelligence. Uh, Self-driving cars, Go playing right. computers, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing is, actually, the techniques are not like you would think because of that. Like there were these brand new techniques invited, invented you know, three years ago, five yes. years ago, et cetera. Yes. It's the same techniques that I learned as an undergraduate. I mean, broadly. There's a little here and there. Right. But it's very familiar to me what I learned as an undergraduate at Stanford. What's actually changed is CPU cycle and data, and to some degree, CPU and cycle and data directly come out of network. Right. Right. Because it's actually, in fact, right. it's the massive parallelism yes. in these things. Yeah. yeah. And being able to do all of these CPUs in a network right. and having all the data generated by the right. network. And that's part of what makes the self driving possible. For example, part of what happens is, and this is a, a small thing on the network, but part of what made uh, AlphaGo work is they start playing itself. And so by the time that it was playing Lee Sedol, right. it had played thousands of lifetimes of games. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> right. And by the way, it's still playing today. Yes. Yeah. Right. Now, the only way to navigate that, once you have this dense network, once you have all this information, and you have these challenges of how do we pull the right kinds of signal out of noise, is you're going to need to have machine learning. Right. You're going to need to have artificial intelligence. Now, people frequently think artificial intelligence as general artificial intelligence. It's like a, an intelligent entity. That's an interesting and entire conversation to itself. Right. But specialized AI is actually now going to become part of everything. Right. Right. It's going to be part of, like, for example, uh, all the self-driving stuff, the, the things that we have in self-driving cars today, that's specialized AI. Yes. Right. Just it, as we couldn't imagine something today not being connected, in the future we're not going to be able to imagine something that doesn't have an AI component. Yes, exactly. And, and, and that's going to be every substantive thing. Like, for example, one of the things uh, Watson today has certain on oncology diagnostic programs that are better than doctors right. on average, like on, in bulk, right? And when they find that the doctor overrides the machine, they find that, the, that more often than not, the doctor is wrong. Yeah. Now, it isn't the doctor is always wrong, but what that means is what happens is we begin to say, okay, now what is being a doctor? It's not, right. oh, I give up, because actually, in fact, what it is is I partner with this AI program, right. 
And I learn how to be adaptive to figure out when, okay, when is the AI program likely to be right and when is it likely to be wrong? That becomes an increased adaptation by me. Right, right, <laughs> right. And it becomes that sophisticated tool because then it's supposed to like, oh, there's this new old thing. And who's it? I'm the doctor. It doesn't right. know. By the way, it's looked at millions totally. of cases Absolutely. in doing this. Right. So what you're actually going is, okay, this thing having looked at millions of cases how might it be wrong in this circumstance? You yes. go, oh, it's probably not. Oh, it's probably right. right. Okay, fine. Well, and then you also have the other issue in that case of the patients. Yes. Which is right. If you're going to choose your diagnosis from somebody who's looked at a million records in the last five minutes yes. or somebody who, you know, over the last 30 years has looked at a couple hundred thousand, yes. you know, the incentive to go with the AI is going yes. to be very strong. Although I, uh, the hope and very strong likely possibility is it will be the combination of man and machine. Yeah. It'll be a combination of, no, actually, I want I want the AI. Right. Absolutely. Fundamentally. Right. And then I would like the, look, I'm looking at this sideways and I'm considering when the AI is right and wrong, what the patterns of it are. Yes. And I go, oh, in this circumstance, we should look a little bit yes. more carefully. Although, you know, speaking as a pilot, uh, you know, it's my hobby, I yes. can tell you there are a lot of times I just as soon have the machine land the plane than yes, the pilot course. at the no, last no. minute being like, is it the wrong way? I've got something lighter. What am I seeing over there? No, no. But actually, part of the human judgment is to say, is precisely Let that. Let it land. Yeah. Look, because I actually think you will still have, you won't necessarily absolutely need to have the pilots. Yes. But it's actually still useful to have the pilot going, no, no, I actually recognize a circumstance. Right. And this is that one in a thousand case, or one in a hundred thousand case where the yeah. machine's actually not right. So, I mean, I think it raises the question, which is, what is the role of the human in the loop? Yes. And trying to figure, one of the things that I think, again, we'll see in our lifetimes is watching humans retreat from the loop. Hmm. That in so many areas, whether it's deciding whether to turn left or drive your car hmm. or deciding what diagnosis is the right diagnosis. And it's just going to be interesting to see how, how far that goes. Yes. Part of this is this idea that the world is kind of disappearing into these black boxes that hmm. are understood by very few people. And I think part of the kind of seventh sense instinct and the reason people whether will be successful in the future is they kind of, they know that that's where power is sitting. Out here, you are surrounded by people who are building the black boxes. Hmm. Um, and you've been out here for, a, you know, this is your home. Uh, and as I come out here and I'm constantly reminded every time I see how beautiful the weather is, you know, get another, yet another wise decision <laughs> that you made. So um, how is that kind of black box culture today and where do you see that going? I mean, that that is, these are profoundly important, you know. Look, so it's, it's not 100% predictable, right? Because part of what happens is sometimes it gets so good and different I don't know how to adapt to it anymore and it's just the role is to, to itself and then what does that mean exactly for us as that yeah. is as multiple black boxes iterate unclear right, right? Uh, thus far we've been pretty good at when we go okay look to, for example to most people the whole financial system is a black box right but it's like I realized I put money in a bank and I but like what's going on in terms of all the insurance and the settlements yes. and the liabilities and the transfers and, and risks and all the rest of it. I just want my ATM card. Yes, I want my ATM card. It's all right. Yeah. And, uh, and yet they're still adaptive, right? So it doesn't, uh, and you quote Weizenbaum several times in your book, yeah. you know, it doesn't degrade their humanity. I actually right. disagree with Weizenbaum about a lot of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because I actually think you can find ways to express your humanity. Yeah, or that it elevates though. your humanity. Yes, in the right exactly. Way. Yeah. Now, that being said, I do think that one of the things that's important is, is like, for example, one of the things that a lot of, of the thoughtful people here in Silicon Valley are thinking, well, what does AI mean for change of labor? Right. What does that mean for changing workforce? How is it that we still have, we make sure that there's a variety of work 
not just computer programming, but there's a variety of work that people feel committed to that rewards them, not just economically, but also kind of spiritually, like right. a sense of purpose and a sense of place and a sense of connectivity, a sense yes, of connection. Yes. And I think that's an urgent problem with this right. because... We're sort of in a race on that right now, yeah. which is can we figure that out before the forces associated with dissatisfaction you know, maybe lead in a different direction. Yeah. And, and I think it behooves all of us as leaders, whether or not we're leaders as technology inventors or leaders of societies, to say, look, we should use the network sense, understand that part of what happened in the networks is things propagate super fast. Right. Right, like for example, why are we having all this progress in AI? Because it can get all this data and it propagates super fast. Totally. And by the way, huge benefit to that. We create a, a, a smartphone app that can essentially look and diagnose skin melanoma, and it's there everywhere. Oh my gosh, the benefit Crap. to the human human race? Awesome. Yes. yes. <laughs> right. So that's very good. But we have to figure out. Okay, let's make sure that we are helping human society, individuals, and groups. Yeah adapt to this as well. Yeah, and I think, I mean, again, that what was so useful for me about going back and reading all the Enlightenment Industrial Revolution literature was you can see the, 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 the influential commercial figures of that age, the political figures, all grappling with this question, and no one of them really figures it out. Uh, because it's so crazy. I mean, yes. the, the farmers are going to vote. That is an absurd-sounding <laughs> idea to a lot of people yes. then. So I think that is sort of where we are now, which yep. is this Kind of no matter what you do, there is this opportunity now to really yep. reinvent all these things. We don't necessarily know what the answer is yeah. going to be. Yeah. Democracy is one of the earliest networks. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, by the way, gets into all these really interesting questions, which is if you look around the world today where we see it's not just the American political system in crisis. All around the world you have these systems that are struggling with these new balances. Yes. Um, so let me ask you kind of to conclude just like one last sort of uh, you know, future-looking question. There's all this work that needs to get done. Uh, the intellectual work, the practical technical work on the architectures, all this sort of stuff. Where should people think about and where are you thinking about kind of how do you plug into that in a way there's no question, as, as we were saying earlier, just because of the path dependency of the next 15 to 20 to 30 years, we live at a, in a moment where just in, we have this incredible responsibility to be working yeah. on this stuff. By the way, it's fascinating and interesting and, and amazing, but how do you think, that's all new territory. So based on your understanding of what's going on out here and the time you spend in Washington, hmm. how should people think about landing in that space to make a difference? Well, so the first thing, and I can say this uh, much better than you can, they should buy your book, The Seventh Sense, and they should they should read it because actually, in fact, having a, the sense of the network is critical. I think the next thing is to cross-check when you're thinking about anything, call it major, right? Whether it's a force in the world, whether it's a major project you want to accomplish, yeah. whether it's your life's work and career, you should think about, well, what's the network play of that, right? So like say, okay, yeah. given networks, how should I think about that? Yes. And ask yourself the question. Right? And that is especially important when you get to, like for example, uh, leaders, uh, CEOs, presidents, you know, right. members of Congress. Right. Say, okay, I am going to be playing within a network. It's not kind of a Newtonian thing where I just exert force and right. something happens. Totally. I am embodied in a network. A network yes. will shape what's around me. And I can act in ways to activate the network and to shape the network. But it's that form of action that I'm going to be taking. Right. How is my plan going to be successful given that? And that, I think, is the, that is the big switch. 
which is that it used to be me first. Yes. And for, I mean, the great miracle of the last 300 years, starting with the Reformation, was Luther saying, like, hey, you can have your own access to God. It's all about you. You, want, you don't have to go through this bizarre yeah. system in which you've got to pay some guy to, like, pray for you. Go do it yourself. Yeah. And now, at, like, the very moment you think we ought to be most free, we have yeah. all these devices, we're untethered, yeah. the reality is our lives are going to be defined by, by being enmeshed. Um, I guess the last thing I would say is just interesting. I've not, I had not, in all of our years of talking, know each other, put the pieces together about this, but it's very interesting you're kind of ending up where you started in a way, which is that you began wanting to consider the great questions of politics and philosophy and uh, the, the things that would shape history. And you looked at that and you said, all right, well, that's pretty interesting, but actually what I want to do is think about the platform. And now you're sort of on the other side of that arc and you're back with those questions. And probably in a way you couldn't have anticipated, certainly I couldn't have anticipated back in the early 90s, the stakes are just way higher than any of us yes. ever would have thought. Yeah, and part of the medium is don't, like writing books is actually important because ideas are important, right. right? And the exchange of discussion and how you orient. But also think about that's not the only medium. And actually, in fact, we live in a medium of networks. And it's not just LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. It's a medium of our actual networks, the people yes. we know, how we relate to them, what our status in these various networks is, how we participate in them, yeah. and do think that way. Yeah, and I think it's very interesting, if you go back and look at the last great change, the scientific revolution, one of the things that was crucial is for the first time they start having scientific congresses and scientific journals, mm. and that gave people an opportunity to sort of cross-connect. Mm. So now imagine that you know, times 1,000x, and that's what we're <laughs> heading into. Um, well, thanks, man, I really appreciate it. It's awesome, always, yeah, great to see you. Good to talk to you. So that's our conversation. Thanks for listening to it, and a reminder that the Seven Cents book is available on Amazon and independent bookstores. It takes you step by step through all of the things you need to know to make sense of this world, because the process of change that we're in the midst of right now is really just getting started. Good luck.